Today we come to the final sermon in our series entitled Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. It's a sermon series that began on December the 13th of last year. Over the last 10 months, we have given careful consideration to this glorious gospel. The Lord has spoken to us through 37 sermons. He has challenged us, called us, changed us, reshaped us, encouraged us, and transformed us by the power of his word. Well, it may seem uh, significant to uh, go through a book of the Bible in 10 months. I must confess to you that dwarfs in comparison to the 10-year study that John MacArthur preached through the Gospel of Luke at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, California. So apparently, we've just scratched the surface. And while we may come to the final sermon of this series, I'm convinced that we'll never get to the end of the gospel. So one more time, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading verses 36 to 53. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 24, let's begin at verse 36. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Those two weary travelers were making their way on the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. All of a sudden, they were approached by Jesus, yet they were kept from recognizing him. The resurrected Christ engaged them in conversation, reminded them that the Christ had to suffer these things and be handed over to wicked men. And then Jesus led them through a enormous Bible study uh, through Genesis to Malachi showing how he is a fulfillment of all of Scripture. By the time they made it to their house, 
Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But the two weary travelers urged him, stay with us, for the day is nearly over, night has come. And Jesus entered their house, he sat down at their table, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And in that moment, in that activity, their eyes were opened and they recognized this was Jesus the Christ. As quickly as he appeared, that's how quickly he disappeared. They looked at each other and they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us along the way? You know that these two individuals had met Jesus and experienced the Lord, for there was learning and yearning and burning, and their hearts were set ablaze. They were willing to risk it all, travel at night, run the risk of being robbed or beaten, jumped, killed, in fact, and they returned the seven-mile journey from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. In our passage, we are told that they were telling the story. By the time they got back to the brothers and sisters that had gathered there in the upper room, they realized that Jesus had not just appeared to them, but he had appeared to numerous others And testimony was layered upon testimony of who Jesus was and how the tomb was empty and that the resurrection was not a rumor but a fact. With each knock of the door brought another convinced believer with an experience to share. I'm sure they worshiped into the wee hours of the morning. They shared the scriptures that Jesus had shared with them. They offered up songs of praise unto the Lord. They worshiped him, realizing that everything he said was true. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive, just as the angel foretold. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And everybody in the house, they were hooping and hollering. They were celebrating. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared. Jesus showed up, and he said, peace be with you. Isn't it wonderful that when people worship Jesus, Jesus actually shows up? Isn't that great? I've got to be honest with you. That's the primary reason I come to church on Sunday. I know that I can meet Jesus anytime, anyplace. I know you can meet Jesus anytime, anyplace. But we have a biblical promise that when God's people get together in this manner, when they come together and study the scripture and sing songs of praise and layer testimony upon testimony, we have the biblical promise that when we come together, Jesus will show up and he'll minister to us in a profound way. He'll speak to us. He'll come and invade our very heart and mind. He will say things to us in this very hour and we come to church because Jesus shows up. So on this day, Jesus said, peace be with you. The disciples, the apostles, those followers that had gathered there, they were startled, they were shocked, they were surprised, they were afraid. And Jesus said to them, look at my hands and my feet. Ironically, this is only the second reference in all the gospel to the nail marks of Jesus in his hands and feet. It's here in Luke 24. It's also found in John chapter 20. Interestingly enough, both of them are after the resurrection of Christ. None of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in their description of the crucifixion, ever tell us in their narrative that the Roman soldiers took nails and drove them into the hands and feet of Christ. The gospel writers knew that most people understood what crucifixion looked like. And so they gave oftentimes the G-rated version. It's not as gory as the literal enactment of a crucifixion, but that's exactly what happened. We know it to be true because on two occasions, Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. 
The implication is the nails were driven right there. Here in Luke 24, he says to the entire crowd, come, look, look at my hands and look at my feet. He says to Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, guys, come, look and see. In John chapter 20, he primarily is speaking to Thomas. Historians call him Doubting Thomas. You know, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus had appeared a week earlier. And so he said to the other brothers, unless I put my finger into the nail prints and my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared when Thomas was there. And he said, hey, buddy, come over here. Give me your finger and place it right there. Take your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus said, peace be with you. As they were startled, he said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. That's an interesting rendition of that phrase. The actual language that Jesus speaks is far more powerful than it is I myself. Actually, what Jesus says is, I am. It's in the Greek language, ego a me. It's the vocabulary that's reserved for God and God alone. Now, John uses this often in his gospel. In fact, he frames his gospel on seven I am statements, the messianic metaphors where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. In John's gospel, on seven occasions, he frames the identity of Jesus with these messianic metaphors where Jesus uses the language and the vocabulary that only God could speak. He said, I am, just like God did in Exodus chapter 3 when he spoke to Moses through the burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. And eventually Moses asked, uh, well, what is your name? If I go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and if the, even the Israelites ask, what is the name of the God that sent you to us? What should I say? And the Lord said, you tell them, I am sent me to you. Well, that's a swell name, but what does that mean? It's a name that means I am the one and only true God. I'm the one who always has been, is, and always will be. I am the unchanging God. I am the eternal God. You tell them the one and only God has sent me to you. What Jesus wants the disciples to know in that upper room that night is that God in the flesh is standing in front of them. I am here. I am with you. So Jesus makes abundantly clear that uh, he is Christ. He is the resurrected Lord. I am is standing here. Look at my hands and my feet, Jesus says. But Jesus understands that he needs to give some convincing proof that he is alive. And so in our passage, he gives a couple of convincing proofs. The first one is, he says, um, touch and see. Do ghosts have flesh and bones as you see I have? Jesus knew in that day what he also knows to be true in this day, that there are many people that will uh, claim that the resurrection of Jesus was just a spiritual action. Not physical, not literal, not bodily, just a spiritual act. They'll think that they just have seen a ghost. They'll proclaim that the resurrection of Jesus is, is not a literal action, but it's just kind of a, a metaphorical. It's a, it's a spiritual, it's a experiential kind of encounter with the Lord. And Jesus says, in good Greek fashion, hogwash. Come, see, do ghosts have flesh and bones as I have? 
Jesus knows that people throughout the ages will try to find the bones of Jesus. It seems that it happens with great regularity nearly every Easter and oftentimes throughout the year. There'll be different agencies, different groups, different secular studies, different uh, liberal interpretations, and they will claim that they found the body of Christ. And I've got to be honest with you that if it's merely a spiritual resurrection, then they ought to find the bones of Christ. But I've got a newsflash. The next time we see the bones of Christ will be when he splits that eastern sky. Because the resurrection of Jesus is literal. It is, it is physical. It is a, a bodily resurrection. Jesus wants the disciples to know, come, touch, and see. You can see that I have flesh and bones. No ghost, no Casper has flesh and bones. I'm not Casper. I'm Christ. Now, why is it important for Jesus to communicate to his, his followers that his resurrection is a bodily resurrection? I suppose there are many answers to that. Let me offer just a few of them this morning. For starters, first and foremost, I'll say that uh, a bodily resurrection demonstrates complete victory over sin. Sin has an effect upon the spiritual and the physical. Sin kills the spiritual and it kills the physical. Uh, we are not just uh, dead spiritually, but we're in the process of dying. All of us can give testimony to that. Look around and we see a creation that is moaning and groaning for recreation. Everything around has been touched and tainted by sin. Not just our inner spiritual being, but everything about us, physical in fact as well. That everything has been touched, everything has been killed by sin. And if Jesus was only spiritually raised from the dead, that's only a partial victory. But you and I both know that Jesus is victorious over sin, the grave, and hell itself. He is victorious over all of death. So that the Apostle Paul will write, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had to be bodily raised from the dead because it is that demonstration of complete victory over sin. But also, secondly, the bodily resurrection of Christ communicates and demonstrates God's satisfaction with the sacrifice of his son. The evidence that we know that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus is the fact that on the third day, Jesus came forth out of the grave. He actually got up and got out. Jesus came out of the tomb. He went into the tomb completely dead. He came out of the tomb completely alive. And by that action, God the Father is saying he is satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. But also, also, a third reason for why we must cling to the bodily resurrection of Christ is that the bodily resurrection of Christ demonstrates and validates the work of Christ on the cross. You do realize that everything about Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. If anybody could prove that this event did not take place, Christianity crumbles. 
But the death of Jesus on a cross, his dead body being placed into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, it validates on Sunday everything that took place on Friday. Because think of it this way. Between Friday and early Sunday morning, Jesus lost all of his followers. Was there anybody sticking with him Friday night into Saturday, Saturday night, or even early Sunday morning? The answer is no. The biblical text tells us that when Jesus was arrested, everybody scattered. There's nobody who's saying, come on, boys, don't y'all remember what he said? He said that the Son of Man would be handed over. He said that he would be crucified. He said that on the third day, he would rise from the dead. So boys, just wait till the first day of the week. Wait till Sunday morning. I know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You wait. Do you get any indication in the gospel text that anybody is with Jesus in the three-day window. No, he's all by himself. Everybody has fallen away. But come Easter Sunday morning, when the women come and give testimony, when Simon comes, gives testimony, when the two weary travelers come, give testimony, when the other disciples come and give testimony, we are now standing in 2,000 years of history where millions upon millions of people are convinced and stake their very lives on the fact of what? That the tomb is empty, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless. Your faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are still dead in your sins. But he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit over all resurrection. Jesus literally got up. He physically was raised from the dead. He bodily walked out of the tomb and Jesus is alive today. And Jesus says to the disciples, come and touch my body. Not only is there a touch test, but it's also a taste test. Y'all got anything to eat? Jesus says, all this has made me hungry. Y'all got anything to eat? And one of the disciples said, well, we think uh, we got some extra broiled fish. You like broiled fish if memory serves us correctly. Yeah, I like some fish. So he took the fish and he ate it. Do you know any ghost who eats fish? You know any ghost who eats food? The answer is no. What's he doing? He's giving convincing proof that it is a bodily resurrection of Christ. Come and see. Ghosts don't have flesh and blood like I have, flesh and bones. And do you have anything to eat? Let me eat this. Apparently, that glorified, resurrected, physical body of Christ was one that had flesh and bones, even a digestive system, yet wasn't affected by time or space or the aging process or even a locked door. That's an amazing body, don't you think? Now, the reason I tell you that is because if you're in Christ, you're going to get one of those one day. I thought you'd get more excited than that. 
Can you imagine that kind of body? You're going to get one of those. One of those bodies, those glorified bodies, those resurrected bodies. Your flesh, your body will be put in the grave. But one day, the trumpet will sound. One day, Jesus will come back. One day, the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be in a twinkling of an eye, changed, transformed. That which is mortal will put on immortality. That which is perishable will put on imperishable. And we will live with Christ forever in a glorified body. I can't wait to get that body. Jesus says this is true. There's the touch test and the taste test. And then Jesus opens their mind. He says everything that was written had to be fulfilled. Everything that has been written has been concerning me, Jesus said. And starting with Moses and going through the prophets and going through the Psalms, he communicated how all of Scripture concerned himself. What Jesus had done on the road to Emmaus to those two weary travelers Opening their minds, walking them through Genesis to Malachi, as we spoke about last week. Now, Jesus does, in the presence of his disciples, the apostles, those followers that had gathered there. And he talks about how all of Scripture was written concerning himself. So that Jesus is not just the author of Scripture or the subject of Scripture. He is the totality of Scripture. All of Scripture is about him. And in that moment, all they had were the, were the trifold aspect of the Scripture. In the Hebrew Old Testament, this is the order in which the Scripture was written. You have Moses, the Pentateuch, and then you have the history and the prophets, and then you have the Psalms. And Jesus is saying, from cover to cover, it's all about me. So in the purest sense, Christianity is not an offshoot of Judaism. In its purest sense, Christianity is not an apostate religion of the first century. In its purest sense, Christianity is not one of many paths in order to get to God. No, Christianity is the only appropriate religion that has been communicated in all of the Bible from cover to cover, from eternity past to eternity future. The only way that anybody gets to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ because all of Scripture is about Jesus. So Jesus starts with Moses and works his way through. I'm sure that on that night, Jesus spoke about numerous passages that he opened their minds to. He probably said, I am the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12. I am of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. I am of the, the line and lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7. I'm the one born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. I am born in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5. I am the suffering servant who would be executed at an early age, beaten beyond all human recognition, placed into a grave only to be raised from the dead. All of that, Isaiah 53. All these passages and so many more, Jesus must have opened up to show that he is the totality of Scripture. Everything points to him. When you and I come 
So Luke 24, verses 45 to 49, Luke gives us his version of the Great Commission. In verses 45 to 49, in a very succinct way, Luke communicates the Great Commission. All this is written, Luke says, so that you will know that the Christ had to suffer, had to be raised from the dead. In light of that, you have to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin in his name. You are all witnesses of this. The Father will send you the promise, and you'll be clothed with power from on high. That is a succinct version of the Great Commission. It's Luke's version of it. It, it, is, it is framed around uh, the understanding of, of three infinitives. Infinitives were used in the Greek language to help uh, uh, flesh out and formulate an idea. And so Jesus is saying, let me tell you about all that has been written about me in all the scripture as it's been written. Let me frame this around three infinitives. And in your language, in the English text, the three infinitives are to suffer, to rise, and to preach. Your translation may not be translated that way, but please just trust me that those three infinitives are there. And Jesus is saying, because the Christ had to suffer, the Christ had to rise from the dead. In light of that, you have to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. I don't know about you, but that's the most succinct gospel presentation I've ever heard. It's also the most succinct messianic mandate I've ever come across in all the Bible. Jesus just literally puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. Luke writes this to say, this is the point that I wrote the gospel. This is the reason why I wrote this gospel track to this guy named Theophilus that we were introduced to some 10 months ago in Luke chapter 1 which interestingly enough, the name Theophilus means friend of God. And so Luke is writing this to all friends of God. And he says, listen, the reason I write this is so that you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ had to suffer. He had to suffer in this way. He had to be handed over to wicked men. They had to crucify him on a cross. He had to die in your place as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. He had to suffer. And on the third day, he had to rise. He had to. He had to get up. It validates everything that he did on the cross. So he had to suffer. He had to rise. In light of that, what do you do? You have to preach. And what do you preach? Do you preach forgiveness as a human effort? Do you preach forgiveness of sin as one way to get to God? No. You preach that repentance is only through forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus the Christ. That's what you preach. And when I say preach, don't misunderstand that preaching can only be what I'm doing this morning. No, all of us who are believers in Christ, we proclaim the gospel. We preach the gospel. Now, I realize that there is an ethical demand to the gospel. Because of the gospel, this then is how we live. I get that. I understand it. Because the gospel... We are to love one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another. We are to be pure and holy and blameless in his sight. Because of the gospel, we are to protect life and not take life. Because of the gospel, we are to be truth tellers and not liars. Because of the gospel, we are to be sacrificial and not selfish. I get that, I understand that, and all of that is exactly true. But do you know why we have 
the ethical demands of the gospel. The primary reason that we have the ethical demands of the gospel is so that when, not if, but when you speak the gospel, your life will give a credible witness to what you proclaim. That's why we have an ethical demand of the gospel. So to the person who says, I just share the gospel by how I live. Well, you're partly right and mostly wrong because in the gospel, it is that we live a certain way so that when we speak, we do not discredit ourselves by living in a hypocritical kind of way. And so we live an ethical demand of the gospel not only so the gospel will be visual because eventually the gospel has to be verbal. We have to proclaim it. We have to preach it. And what do we preach Luke says, let's be very clear about this. We preach repentance through the forgiveness of sins in his name. Repentance is not just the changing of the mind, but it is a turning and trusting. It is turning to Christ as Savior. It is trusting him as Lord. It is turning away from our wicked ways. It is trusting that Jesus is the long way to Messiah. There is trusting. There is turning in repentance. We're not just changing our mind, but God is overtaking our minds. And it's only through repentance of sin can we be forgiven. The one major obstacle From you to God is your sin. And Jesus came to obliterate that sin. He came to pay your sin debt because you have such an enormous sin debt, you can't pay it. Only Jesus, the God-man, can. And so Jesus came and he paid our sin debt and it's only by belief upon the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross we repent of our sin, we turn from our wicked ways, we trust Jesus instead of the ways of the world and we find forgiveness in his name. The name of a person in the first century communicated essence and character and power. Your salvation is not wrapped up in you. Your salvation is wrapped up in the name Jesus Christ. So Luke says, let's be, let's be very, very clear about this. This is the reason I wrote this gospel, Theophilus. I wrote this gospel because I want you to be so convinced. I want you to have a blessed assurance as to the identity of who Jesus is that it will compel you to talk. Luke knows the last thing we need are silent saints. The last thing we need are people who are silent about the Savior. We do not need silent saints. We need people who are so convinced that he had to suffer, that he had to rise, that in light of that, I've got to preach the gospel. And what's the gospel? It is repentance for forgiveness of sin in his name. And Luke says, you've got to be convinced of this because he has a holy hunch that if people are convinced that the tomb is empty, you won't be able to shut them up. If you're really convinced that the tomb is empty, if you're really convinced that they ain't gonna find the bones, if you're really convinced that Jesus died in your place and on the third day he came to give you eternal life and he rose up from the dead, if you're really convinced about this, you cannot be silent. So it was John MacArthur who said, the church... And he used that in a very general sense. The church does not have a missions department. We have missionaries. 
We do not have just a selected few individuals who are on a mission committee and they are the only one tasked with the passion of taking the gospel here, there, and everywhere. No, we have in our context a thousand missionaries. We have people that are so convinced that they cannot be silent about the gospel. Wherever they go, they've got to show it and they've got to say it. It is Dr. Smith, Robert Smith Jr., who says we do not have a social gospel. We do not need to gospelize, uh, to socialize the gospel. We need to gospelize the social. We need to take the gospel into a dark, dead society and show them how to be saved. And it's the only remedy and serum for salvation the cruelest thing we can do is to know how somebody can be healed and not tell them it's the cruelest thing imaginable so in Luke's version of the great commission he says you've got to know and be convinced that Jesus had to suffer and he had to rise And in light of his suffering and resurrection, you have to preach. You've got to proclaim the good news. If you're convinced that the tomb is empty, you've got to go tell. You know, maybe uh, the obvious flaw in the church today is that there may be some people in the church who aren't very convinced that the tomb is empty. And maybe that's why people are silent. Oh, church, we cannot be silent. We, we, we must be convinced that the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And because of that, we must go and tell. Jesus says, you are all witnesses of this. That word witness is the word martyr. Literally, it's a transliteration. It is the word martyr. You are a martyr, which means you speak this gospel until you die. Or... You speak this gospel until it causes you to die. Either way, you speak the gospel until you have your last breath. You are a martyr of this. He says, you're witnesses of this. You've seen this. This gospel, which is nothing new. It's been around uh, since the Garden of Eden. This is nothing new. This gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. This gospel has been on display in the gospel of Luke. This is the gospel that saved the paralytic. This is the gospel that saved uh, the woman of ill repute. This is the gospel that saved the prodigal son. This is the gospel that saved the uh, tax collector. This is the the, uh, gospel that saved Zacchaeus. This is the gospel that's been on display in all of Luke's gospel. You're witnesses of this. You proclaim it until you die. Or you proclaim it until it calls you to die. Now Jesus knows that we will shy away from this, Right? I can sense it already. Some of y'all are getting further and further back, as close to the back door as possible. This kind of, this is, it's uncomfortable. And Jesus knew that. So at the very end of his uh, version of the Great Commission, he says, I'll give you the promise, the Holy Spirit. He will come and clothe you with power from on high. I know, Jesus says, if you go out in your own duds and try to do this, you'll be a dud. You'll fall flat on your face. You won't be able to do it. You'll convince yourself they're going to laugh at me. They won't believe me. They'll ridicule me. And you'll just neglect yourself into silence. So he says, I I promise you, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. 
just as I promised, and the Holy Spirit will clothe you. That's a great imagery, isn't it? The Holy Spirit clothing us. You do know that your clothes communicate a message. Your clothes communicate confidence and character. You dress a certain way and you communicate a certain image. We all know this to be true. We've seen people dressed to the nines and we say, well, they must be somebody of importance. We see other people dressed and we think to ourselves, they actually walked out of their house thinking they look good today. I can't believe they wore that. Why did they wear that? They look like this or that. Why did they wear that? We've all done that. Why? Because your attire communicates a message. I can give a trite little illustration of this. I can make a hospital visit in a suit and tie. And I can make a hospital visit in jeans and a shirt. And I can testify that people treat me differently when I walk through the hallways in a suit and tie. I mean, I'm talking about people that are other visitors in the hospital, other family members, not even the family I'm visiting, but other people um, uh, in the waiting room, even other employees, employees of the hospital, people that are dressed up in the proper uniforms. They look at me. They treat me differently when I walk down the hallway in a suit versus when I walk down the hallway in jeans and a t-shirt. Why is that? It's because how you are clothed communicates a message. How you are clothed gives off a certain level of confidence and character. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm going to clothe you with the Spirit of God so that you'll have power and boldness. Power that only comes from on high. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will open your closed lips. That power will enable you to speak and you'll have boldness. Boldness to go and say thus saith the Lord, Jesus is alive. Because some of us need some holy unction in our life. Some of us need to know that that God's Spirit is draped all over us. He is clothing us with His power and His boldness. So go out, church, and speak the good name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus took the followers out to the Mount of Olives to the eastern slopes near Bethany. And as He blessed them, He was taken up into heaven. And joy filled their hearts. Once again, uh, Luke is a great storyteller. It's a, it's a story that begins with joy, it ends with joy. Those shepherds in the field, they had joy all over themselves when they realized that the Messiah had come. And here the disciples are filled with joy as they realize that the resurrected Christ has come and appeared to them and now he's ascended into the heavens. And they went back and they worshiped God. They worshiped the Lord. Luke's gospel begins in the temple and it ends in the temple. It begins with Zechariah giving the sacrifice. That's the father of John the Baptist. The scene is the temple. The ending scene is that God's people get back to the temple and they're worshiping the Lord with all of their might. And they keep worshiping him with joy. So I'm going to end the way we began some 10 months ago. And I'm going to ask you, what, where, who? What's your what, where's your where, and who's your who? Because you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you learning? If a disciple is a lifelong believer of the Lord, what are you learning? If a disciple takes the gospel here, there, and everywhere, everywhere, where are you going with the gospel? Where are you taking it? It can be across the street. It can be across the world. But you've got to know, where are you taking the gospel? And who? Who are you trying to reach? 
If something specific doesn't come to your mind in less than three seconds, when I ask those three questions, you're not being intentional enough. What's your what? Where's your where? Who's your who? It was Steve Brown who said, the church has become a place where a nice, pleasant, bland person stands in front of other nice, pleasant, bland people, urging them to be nicer, more pleasant, and more bland. The problem is that Jesus did not die on the cross to create nice, pleasant, bland people. He died so that sinners could find forgiveness. And in the joy and exuberance of that discovery, they'd find it impossible to keep silent about it. Church, we are not about producing nice, pleasant, bland people. We're about producing people that are on fire for the Lord, who are convinced that Christ is risen from the dead, that he is Messiah, and one day he's coming back. And in the meantime, we've got to go and proclaim the gospel, not just visually, but verbally it's got to be in our lives and it's got to be on our lips and we've got to tell anybody and everybody the way to be saved and the only way that any sinner can be saved is by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins he was buried on the third day he was raised again oh my friends we are not a part of a silent church we are a church that believes with every fiber of our being that the tomb is empty So in the joy and exuberance of that discovery, you cannot be silent. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's one here who does not know you as personal Savior, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. Like launching them out of a cannon, I pray that they will bolt down this, this aisle. Take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I need this Jesus. If there's somebody here who needs to make a decision for Christ, maybe join this church, maybe come for prayer. As you lead, we will respond. And Lord Jesus, help us not to be silent about the Savior. You have not given us a gospel gag order. So help us to be bold. In Jesus' name, amen.